This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. God in his great mercy and concern addressed Ezekiel as a prophet saying, Son of man, do you see what they're doing in my sanctuary? The abominations that they're doing in the very house of Israel? Should I go far off from my sanctuary, God asked. Don't you see the wicked abominations that they're doing there? So Ezekiel says, I went in and I saw abominations, the kinds of things that were contrary to the word of God, the will of God, and the ways of God, even the leaders of the house of Israel, And then God brought me up to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, and there were the women also engaged in pagan practices. And then he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house, between the porch and the altar, and there were leaders there as well, false worship, perverting the gospel, perverting the ministry, perverting the sanctuary, And God responded, saying, My eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Maybe it's been a long time since you read that passage from Ezekiel chapter 8, but in fact, the whole book of Ezekiel is based upon God's look at his own people, and particularly his sanctuary. In 1996, About three years after we formed Safe America Ministries as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation, the Lord put on my heart a terrible burden for his church. It was so terrible that it was affecting my health, and my wife said, Chuck, you've got to get out of here and hear from God. So she arranged to have me sent to a place called Prayer Mountain in Colorado Springs, that is, on the northern uh, slopes of Pikes Peak, America's Mountain where Catherine Lee Bates penned those words, God shed his grace on thee. And after a week of praying and crying out to the Lord, that time resulted in a lawsuit. Jehovah God, the Lord of nations, versus the spiritual leaders of America, a.k.a. pastors, parachurch leaders, broadcasters, authors, and so on, as defendants. It was set forth in five legal causes of action for fraud and manipulation and misrepresentation and so on. And then it was served on 300 of the most prominent Christian leaders in the land, leading up, leading up to Fasting and Prayer 96 in St. Louis, where 4,000 Christian leaders gathered ostensibly to pray for our country. When Nancy Lay DeMoss got a copy of that lawsuit, she read it and contacted me, and she said, Chuck, what you did not know is that I have been selected to be the keynote speaker at this event. When I received your lawsuit, she said, it so pierced my heart. I have been waiting for direction from the Lord as to how to communicate to the leaders of God's people what he had in mind for them. 
And when I got the lawsuit, it showed me exactly what I needed to talk about. Well, in my hand right now is a brochure, well, of sorts. It's the printing of the address that Nancy Lay DeMoss gave to the 4,000 Christian leaders gathered at Fasting and Prayer 96 in St. Louis. Its title, Begin at My Sanctuary. Begin at my sanctuary, just as God told Ezekiel that his judgment would begin at his sanctuary. But why would he do that? Why would God bring judgment to his own sanctuary? We want to talk about that here on Viewpoint today. I trust that you'll pray for us, even in the context of our conversation here today with my special guest, Warren Cole Smith, because... We're going to talk about faith-based fraud, faith-based fraud, or another way to put it is the manipulation of ministry, or another way to put it is who is the master of ministry anyway? So I welcome you to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. As always, it's conversation with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms, and I hope that you will open your heart and your mind because today we are going to confront some very difficult issues. Our special guest, as I said, Warren Cole Smith, joining us again. It's been many years. Warren, it's good to have you back on the program. Thank you, Chuck. It has been too long, but it is good to be back. Well, uh, I doubt that you were aware. Were you at Fasting and Prayer 96, perchance? I was not there at the event, but I know Nancy Lee and uh, and Nancy Lee DeMoss Walgamuth now. She's yes, been, she's married, and uh, and I know about the event. So yeah. God bless you for uh, uh, for you, uh, your contributions to that event, if indirectly even. Well, it was it was fascinating because uh, after that uh, document went out and was served on three hundred national Christian leaders, uh, there were a couple of ministries that uh, invited me to join them in their uh, suites there at the hotel at that event uh, to have a pre, shall we say, a pre-event deposition taken. And they spent an hour and a half taking my spiritual deposition of the uh, view concerning the church, what was going on, and so on, in preparation for that particular event. So when Nancy Lee DeMoss gave that address, it literally shook up the people. Begin at my sanctuary. It was a call to repentance in the church, something that we had not heard and have not heard since, quite frankly, to any significant degree. And so you bring a book to us today, Faith-Based Fraud, now, that sounds very uh, very worldly, very worldly in its very title. And yet, the reason for that is you're depicting the profound worldliness that's taken place in God's own sanctuary, haven't you? Well, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that uh, unfortunately, um, even those of us who are called to ministry uh, and uh, – have succumbed in many ways uh, to the methodologies and the goals and the practices of the world. And unfortunately, I'm not, Chuck, I want to be really clear. There are guys like you, others, doing great work for the kingdom of God, great uh, work for the glory of God. And, uh, you know, I think the vast majority of um, 
pastors and uh, folks that are involved in ministry, uh, they are humble, and they live sacrificially, certainly not lavishly. And, but unfortunately, there are those that um, they give the gospel and give ministry a bad name, and those are the ones that we want to talk about in the book. Not so we can say, oh, aren't we so much better than they are, or you know, holier than thou, or you know, looking at the um, speck in another uh, person's eye and ignoring the log in our own, mm-hmm. but in fact, just the opposite, so that we can learn um, how to behave ourselves. Yeah. And, um, you know, what sort of barriers of protection, hedges of protection, uh, systems of accountability and transparency that we need in our own lives Absolutely. to keep us from going in that direction. Well, we'll be back after this with uh, Warren Cole Smith at his book, Faith-Based Fraud. Hang in there, my dear friends. You might want to anchor a seatbelt. We'll be back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. And the Lord said to Ezekiel, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark on the foreheads of the men that are crying for all the abominations that are done in my house. And to the others, he said, go after him and smite him. Let not your eyes spare, nor have pity. And I want you to begin, he said, at my sanctuary. And while they were slaying them, Ezekiel said, I fell on my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the residue of Israel in your pouring out of your fury upon Jerusalem? And then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. For they say, The Lord has forsaken, and the Lord doesn't see it. Again, I welcome you back to Viewpoint. Today we're talking about what is going on and has been going on in the broader ministry of the so-called body of Christ, particularly within the broader evangelical and charismatic community. We're not muckrakers. We are not here to try to uh, stir up a hornet's nest of complaints in the idea that somehow those of us who are discussing this are holier than thou, and we certainly want, don't want to do it in an attitude of self-righteousness because the Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags in and of ourselves, and somebody can always point out some area that they disagree with or have error. Here on this program, as you know, if you've been listening to this program long, you know that we do not make a habit of muckraking or bringing to the fore the names specifically of people where we're discussing issues. We try not to do that, with one exception, and that is where those individuals that are involved are of such a public nature, and the trust factor is so great among the broader body of Christ 
that it becomes necessary to actually disclose their names and their ministries. That will happen here today on Viewpoint. might be troubling to someone, but I wanted to preface our comments today with these words. Because God is as concerned about our attitudes as he is about our actions. He really is, including yours and mine. Our special guest today, Warren Cole Smith, with his book, Faith-Based Fraud. I want to make the book available to you for your gift of $14 or more to Save America Ministries. It's on our website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling, and we'll get it in your hands. Now, Warren, I, I want to ask you very specifically, why did you feel impressed to write such a book? This is very important. Well, I don't think there was a single reason, Chuck, but there were lots of reasons uh, that sort of came together. I've been involved in journalism for most of my adult life and career, Mm-hmm. And uh, over time, I had um, covered some of these stories personally, mm-hmm. and uh, for, for World Magazine or for other newspapers and magazines that I had uh, worked for. And I began to, um, I guess you could say, um, believe more strongly than ever that sunlight is the best disinfectant, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that, that, that there were things going on within the body of Christ that were not honoring uh, to God, and that um, many people were, uh, even within the body of Christ, were glossing over these problems. They they uh, didn't. Ex- they would say they didn't exist, or they might say, "Well, we've got to touch not God's anointed." That oh, now is- wait, wait, wait a minute! Now you brought up a term that yep. needs some further explanation. How many times have I heard that used by pastors? as a means of excusing or protecting or insulating themselves from any negative observation. Well, I've heard it so many times, Chuck, that I started calling it the get-out-of-jail-free card. (laughs) It's a a proof texting of that verse. I believe it is in uh, Psalm 105.15, if my my memory serves me correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and and the, the problem with using that verse, first of all, I believe all Scripture is inspired by God, that it's right. inerrant, that it is God's Word, and I want to be really clear about that. So, but, but, but we have to use discernment in the way we wield that sword, so to speak. We have well, to, absolutely, you know, and in fact, that verse is talking about Israel. He suffered no man to do them, that is, Israel, wrong. In other words, God was the one to watch over Israel, and he called Israel his anointed. Yep. He didn't well, call the pastors of his people in our generation the anointed ones. Well, and I think you're raising really the key point here, Chuck, is that who is God talking about? Who? What is Scripture talking about whenever they talk about God's anointed? And I think that, that, that it is a perfectly reasonable interpretation of Scripture to say he ain't talking about Benny Hinn, and he ain't talking about some of the other prosperity gospel preachers. And that uh, just because these ministries might appear uh, to be large and successful doesn't mean that they are fruitful in a biblical sense. Having a whole lot of people coming in the front door of your church 
is not bearing fruit. The fruit of Scripture is love, joy, peace, kindness, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, so I think we're 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 misdefining what it means when we say who and or what God's anointed is. And I also think that we're misinterpreting what real biblical fruit is. That we have come to believe the measurements of the world. That the yes. more money you have, the more people you have, the larger the building you have, maybe the bigger the jet you have, or the larger you know the more radio stations that you're on. That must mean that you're fruitful, and that is not how God defines fruitfulness. It's interesting, Warren, because one of the frequent questions that I get from producers and and others, even uh, guests that I bring on the program here, we've been on the air for 26 years, and uh, one of the frequent questions I get, well, how many listeners do you have? Well, how many stations are you on? And my answer is, I don't know how many listeners I have. And it doesn't matter. The reason it doesn't matter is because I'm obeying God. I'm doing what he asked me to do, and that's his job. His job is to take the message and spread it. I'm doing my part. He needs to do his part. Unfortunately, what's happening in our country and throughout the broader evangelical community is we feel that it's important that we have to do God's part. Not just our part, but God's part. And when we do that, it necessarily brings compromise, and then we begin to justify the end justifies the means. And that's where we get into trouble, I think. I, I think you're exactly right. You know, uh, as I'm fond of saying, it's the key message of faith-based fraud is that uh, obedience is our duty, the result are God's responsibility. Absolutely. But you know what? The word obey has been falling on very hard times, so hard that it's deemed a four-letter word throughout most of the church today. I've had many a pastor and parachurch leader on this program over the past five years that have admitted to me the word obey is the most hated word in the church. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, the, 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 and, you know, the Bible warns against that, too. Should, you know, should we continue in sin that grace might increase? And the answer <laughs> is, may it never be. Exactly. Is, we live under grace. You know, thank God that we have grace. But, you know, we, uh, we are still compelled to obey. Yep. It brings glory to God, and it, and it is good for us. It is good for our relationship with Jesus, and it is really our relationship with Jesus that defines our happiness and our our blessedness and our fruitfulness and who we are as human beings. Being well, in Christ is the most important sort of identity about us. I do not find anywhere in the Scripture that it says, be ye happy. But it does say, be ye holy. Yeah. God yeah, doesn't want us to be unhappy, but he wants us to be holy. But we have exchanged the pursuit of happiness for holiness, and now we're neither happy nor holy. Amen. All right. That having been said, we've laid a foundation here. We've talked about some of the aspects that lead us to the present problem. Now, we're going to be taking a look, friends, at things happening in the broader evangelical community and things happening in the broader charismatic and word faith community. Those are the two areas that we're talking about. We're not talking about the mainline church. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. They have their own problems. We're talking about what we tend to think is God's warmest audience. And that's where God 
is bringing his reproof. That's where he always brings his reproof, and all the warnings of Scripture are directed to professing Christians, not to pagans. That may come as a shock to you, but that is true. Do you agree with that, Warren? You know, I absolutely do agree with that. It, 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 as I'm fond of saying that, uh, you know, the, the, the and, and forgive me for being a little bit glib here, Chuck, but uh, I say sometimes that the world that is going to hell on a bobsled, not because pagans are acting like pagans, but because Christians are acting like pagans. There you go. And I think that, um, you know, that's just a different way of saying what you said. I mean, you know, the, the world is going to act like the world. Pagans are going to act like pagans. It is, the, I think, the duty of the Church and the ability of the Church, if we are truly living, you know, it, standing on the, the firm foundation of Scripture and living in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is, it is both the duty and the ability of the Church to show a different way, to be a set-apart people, to be a sanctified people. And I believe that, um, that we have failed, that we have lost our way, we have turned away from that first love as the book of Revelation says, and that is a big part of the problem. Well, as God said, we're supposed to discern the difference between the holy and the profane. Hmm. We have lost that ability to discern because we have been pursuing a secondary goal. The secondary goal is building the church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. You make disciples. We decided to build churches and have done a poor job at making disciples. I think that's part of the problem. Mm. I think that's a great insight. I really do. All right, well, let's go back to where this began. This began, in the, for the most part, in the 1970s. In the 1970s, a very unusual trend began called the church growth movement. It began uh, through one of the supposedly most evangelical seminaries in the country, Fuller Evangelical Seminary, right there in Pasadena, California, where I was practicing law. So I was right at the heart of it. In fact, uh, I used to lead for 10 years the Christian Businessmen's Committee as a practicing lawyer right there on the outskirts of Fuller Seminary. And uh, so my law practice was directly across the street from one of the largest congregations that had some of these leaders from the evangelical movement that carried on the so-called church growth movement. So I was right in the midst of it, saw it happening real time. Well, what happened with the church growth movement? Warren, as I saw it, we began to adopt the ways of the world, all kinds of uh, shenanigans, strange things, practices, and so on, to try to gather more people into our churches thinking that this was going to please God. The reality is that the more people we tried to gather in that way, the less we discipled them and the weaker the church became. Do you have any observations along that line? Well, first observation will be that I think you're exactly right. Uh, that it, it, As near as I can tell, Chuck, uh, around 1970, there were probably only about a dozen, maybe 15 to 18, uh, mega ch- Protestant megachurches in this country, and a megachurch is divine, defined as a church that has more than 2,000 people. By the way, I get these numbers from a, a man named Elmer Towns, who mm-hmm. was studying church growth back in right. the day. And, and he's and, been uh, on this program a number of times. Exactly. Well, that's great. I mean, he, he, he knows of what he speaks, and, and uh, that, those are kind of his numbers. Today, 
Um, it's a little unclear how many megachurches we have, churches above 2,000, but that number is uh, probably in excess of 3,000 churches. So in a 50-year yeah. space, we've gone from, you know, only a dozen or so churches with more than 2,000 members to more than 3,000 churches. In fact, megachurch, more than 2,000 attendees on a Sunday, doesn't even really describe a lot of these churches anymore. They That's have correct. five, six, seven, ten thousand, twenty thousand people showing or, up. Or 50,000. Well, that's right. But, of course, the problem with that, uh, Chuck, is that is what you've already identified. Uh, They're making um, spectators, not disciples. That, in fact, if you go to some of these large churches, like I'll just use, you know, Joel Osteen's church in Houston, Texas, there might be as many as 20 percent of the people on any given Sunday who don't even live in the community. They are tourists, if you will. Yep. They, are, they are treating the church as a yep. tourist. Religious tourists. All right, we'll be back after this, friends. We really need several hours to talk about this, but we only have a half hour left. Stay tuned. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. From the church growth movement came another movement. You could call it the Willow Creek movement. You could call it the Saddleback movement. Those were just emblematic of the next movement. And then now we're in yet a third iteration movement, the emerging church movement. All of these movements have had the effect of actually diluting the message of the truth of the gospel, diluting the very purpose of the church, which is, which is to disciple the people, to teach them to obey everything that God has commanded, and instead have been used to lure fickle-minded people based upon their feelings to embrace a Lord that demands their obedience. The net effect of it is it has distorted and perverted ministry in our time. And it's even more serious if we're really on the near edge of the second coming of Christ. That's how I see it, the context of it, putting it in the proper framework, uh, Warren. And uh, I think we're in serious, serious problems if we don't understand that indeed uh, this is where we are uh, if we do not see that... uh, we're on the near edge of the second coming. This is not to be taken lightly. But I think you're exactly right. You know, you mentioned the uh, sort of the Willow Creek. We devoted an entire chapter in uh, Faith-Based Fraud. I, I devoted an entire chapter in Faith-Based Fraud to Willow Creek and the, sort of the rise and fall of Willow Creek Church. And, you know, the so-called 
seeker movement or seeker sensitive. That was that was the next iteration, the seeker sensitive movement after the church growth movement. That's right. And you know, I, I, I don't like you say, Chuck. We could spend hours on this, and we and I talk about some of these, uh, um, uh, some of the the tendencies and the methods that are used by the seeker movement in, in that chapter on Willow Creek. But uh, essentially, uh, Willow Creek adopted what it called youth group for grownups. Willow Creek's um, DNA, you might say, was as a youth group, mm-hmm. and it and it was and it was started in the era where youth groups didn't mean studying scripture, but it meant pizza and paintballs. And um, they <laughs> kind of brought that ethos, that, that, that culture, um, to, to grown-up ministry as well. The problem with that, though, is that uh, it doesn't really make disciples, as you said, which, of course, is the core mission of the Church, is to make disciples. It's, it's, um, it, it continues, no matter how old the person is, no matter how long they've been in the Church, to continue feed on, feeding them baby food, so they never come to full maturity. These churches, though, become very, very large, and we discover that they're often led by people who are not spiritually mature and do not have sort of the internal fortitude to face the challenges of running real organizations, especially large organizations. And that's why we see these falls of men like Bill Hybels or Ravi Zacharias or others Mm -hmm. that have been so much in the news lately. And uh, Again, we're, I'm not. I didn't write faith-based frog to pick on these guys or to you know point my finger at them and say you know thank God that I'm not like those uh, people. I, I wrote the book in order to try to discern lessons that we could all apply to our lives. Among those lessons being having systems of accountability in our lives, whether it be elders or deacons or or others, if we're a nonprofit leader, a board of directors that will keep us on the straight and narrow, to have clear statements of faith, to uh, make sure that there's transparency in the way we run our the financial aspects of our ministry. Those are the lessons that I'm trying to communicate through these stories in the book. Well, it is fascinating. Uh, I actually know many of the people uh, that you have mentioned in the book, and um, whether you're talking about people so-called pastors and parachurch leaders who have multiple uh, Gulfstream jets or other forms of jets and uh, are jet uh, jetting all over the world and then justifying uh, their multiple jets. Uh, it's very hard to understand for the average person how Someone could justify spending untold millions, even close to a billion dollars, in such transportation when Jesus walked and rode on a donkey. <laughs> well, I, it is hard for the average person to understand because I don't think it makes logical sense. Uh, you, you know, you can't justify it. Um, from an economic or uh, an operational efficiency point of view. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story, Chuck. Warren Buffett, who was, you know, of course, many of your listeners will probably know, one of the richest men on the planet, right. he, he railed against having private jets, even in a corporate setting. Finally, one day, he kind of, he, he had made enough money, he wanted to buy a jet for himself, so he broke down and bought it. 
but he had painted on the you know how you christen a boat or a uh-huh. plane or something. He had painted on the side of his airplane the indefensible because it's indefensible. There's you know it you do it purely for ego. You do it purely. Okay, the word um, ego is not in the Bible, but the word pride is. Yep, that's a good, yep. We need to call things what they really are and not use euphemisms for them because then we're hiding. That's a good word. And this this brings us to uh, perhaps um, a phrase that dropped into my mind as I was preparing for this program today, justifying the unjustifiable justifying the unjustifiable. Now, there are many things that any of us could look at somebody else and say, well, you know, that's excessive or that's unjustifiable. But then there are, what should we say, limits about how unjustifiable unjustifiable really is. Because there's always somebody that makes more money. There's always somebody that has a bigger house or a different car, this, that, or the other. But it seems that there are parameters where unjustifiable becomes so glaring that it really is unjustifiable. Now you've got to concoct all kinds of excuses for why this is justifiable. What say you? Well, I say that you're exactly right. There's this uh, phenomenon that I sometimes call a reality distortion field Mm -hmm. that rises around the sort of uh, the charismatic leaders, these leaders that are sort of larger than life. Uh, they, they, They start kind of trying to craft a mythology and a reality about themselves and their organization because, as you say, Chuck, uh, you, if you just look at it objectively, it doesn't make sense. You can't justify it. So they have to um, create almost a story uh, that goes around them and their organization to allow that to happen. You know, for example, uh, and maybe not the perfect example, but Ravi Zacharias, the, the, the evangelist and, and uh, apologist that passed away last year, and we've discovered so many terrible things that have come out about him since then. And Robbie was a friend of mine. I knew Robbie personally. I've got many pictures of myself on my phone with Robbie. Uh-oh. Uh, exactly right. So, I, <laughs> you know, I loved him in many ways, but, but you know, I could see uh, in his life and ministry, and I can especially see it now, that um, when we can look back and read some of the communications that, you know, that were left behind and some of the uh, people that have now come forward with stories is that you know he said that the 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 pre- that the pressure and the stress associated with being you know uh, in the public eye all the time led him to some of the behavior. It became an excuse. It became a justification for what was clearly ungodly behavior. The possibility of actually pulling yourself out of that situation that was creating that stress apparently never occurred to him. He chose instead to leave himself in those situations that made him vulnerable and then elected uh, to then engage in ungodly behavior, sexual behavior that he would then justify later as being sort of a byproduct of the the ministry work he was mm, doing yeah. and something he deserved because of what he had sacrificed. Uh, well, you have ministry. a page, uh, two pages, in which you actually list out 20 of... Uh, the so-called pastors and parachurch ministries uh, that own jets. Yeah. And you've given the tail numbers, the type of aircraft, and so on. And uh, one wonders 
I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars here. We're not talking about would, just millions. We're talking about billions of dollars. And I then, would say that in the aggregate, that's probably right. Yeah. And, and, and then it's not just the price of the plane. It's the maintenance of the plane. Then, generally speaking, they have to have a pilot. They have to have other people. So the net effect, the net cost to the ministry is immense beyond all proportions. And one, as you know, as Warren Buffett said, painting the uh, the name on his plane, the indefensible. Uh, that's that's very fascinating. Now, one yeah. of the things that I find is it's very easy for traditional evangelical pastors and parachurch leaders to point the finger at the charismatics and word faith people. Now, there's no question about it. The charismatics and word faith people are some of the worst offenders. I know some of these people have had some on this program. I know them. I know their ministries. Now, the problem with that is God isn't just looking at one group. He's looking at all. For instance, to me, one of the most grievous situations has to do not with the charismatic group, but with the evangelicals and particularly David Jeremiah. That, to me, is one of the most grievous situations that has come across our path in the last 30 years. Explain it. Well, I think you're right, Chuck, because, you know, we, in some ways we almost expect these, um, you know, these Pentecostal word of faith, um, you know, prosperity gospel preachers uh, to behave the way they behave. I mean, they're they're preaching in the prosperity gospel. They They think that their big jets and their big mansions are signs of success. Um, I agree with you that it is even more grievous whenever folks that ought to know better are behaving that way as well. And in the case of David Jeremiah, once again, I devote uh, almost a full chapter to David Jeremiah in uh, faith-based fraud. Yeah, you uh, call he, it the Christian industrial complex. Right, and uh, I do. the I reason do. I, let me let me just explain. I have talked repeatedly about the evangelical economy. There's something that we call the evangelical economy, and money speaks. Money speaks. And we're supposed to be self-promoting, promoting ourselves. That's why I told you, do not promote your book. I'm going to promote it for you. Friends, $14. We'll put it in your hands. Faith-based fraud. It's on our website, saveus.org. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by His Spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, Behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. The 
There are two organizations we need to know about before we get into our discussion here in this final segment of the program. One is called the NRB, the National Religious Broadcasters Association. I happen to be a member. The other is ECFA, or the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. These two organizations, theoretically, theoretically, were to guide and protect ministries against the very kinds of things that our guest today has disclosed in his book, Faith-Based Fraud. He says we need to learn from the great religious scandals of our time. And we don't have time to go into all of them. But one of the most recent ones has to do with a pastor, a very prominent pastor, David Jeremiah. And he is so revered. And he is a good Bible teacher. uh, But so revered in the celebrity climate of today that one of the grossest problems ever to have occurred has taken place in the last, uh, say, 10 years there. Tell us about it. Well, Chuck, David Jeremiah, uh, as you say, he um, he is a great Bible teacher. In fact, it's funny, whenever I was uh, reporting uh, on this chapter in for some, I actually did some articles before uh, I wrote the book on David Jeremiah, I would be put on hot call out there to try to, you know, get some comment from them or to get some information. I'd get put on hold, and what you would hear when you were on hold, if you call David Jeremiah's Turning Point Ministries is David Jeremiah preaching. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'd be on hold for five or ten minutes, and I was, I was honestly, you know, I would not hear anything that I would, couldn't say amen to whenever I was listening to him preach. But his business practices did, did not rise to the level that, in my view, um, should are, that Christian ministry practices should rise to. So, for example... In fact, um, they were he, so gross as to really get the attention of the New York uh, Times and the New York Times bestseller list for yeah. the abuse. That's right. That's right. Uh, David Jeremiah was, and, and the Turning Point Ministries was essentially buying uh, his books onto the New York Times bestseller list. They had uh, engaged a company called Result Source, which would um, uh, had a network of people scattered all around the country, um, that would use things like Visa gift cards or Amazon gift cards to purchase books and make it appear that the book was was uh, just taking off, was catching fire, that people were loving the book and that they were buying it from the four corners of the country, yeah. when in fact that had been a concerted effort. And by the way, it's not cheap to do a campaign like that. It costs a couple hundred thousand dollars because you not only have to buy the books at full retail cost, and you normally have to buy twenty or 25,000 books in a week in order to get your book on the New York Times bestseller list. But you've got to pay the results source company for managing this process as yep. well. Um, I don't know exactly what David Jeremiah paid, but what I do know is that Mark Driscoll at a church called Mars Hill Church did the same thing with the same company. They spent about a quarter of a million dollars to get his book for one week on the New York Times bestseller list. Unbelievable. Now, in my practice as an attorney, I would have called this fraud. It's obtaining something by false pretenses. What they're obtaining is a status level among professing Christians by false pretenses, literally buying and using ministry money to commit the fraud. That, I I think we need to call it what it really is. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's right, and uh, you know that's of course why I included chapter on the practice in faith-based fraud. So I, I I completely agree with you. You know, it's and again, Chuck. One of the things that's interesting about this sad, ironic, but also interesting. I'm uh, I'd have to say is that. This practice, which is engaged in by Christian ministries, and mm-hmm. I actually document a number of people, in addition to David Jeremiah and Mark Driscoll, there's Perry Noble at a church in South Carolina and others that engage in this practice of buying books on the New York Times bestseller list. It is uh, done by these Christian ministers, ministries, but even the New York Times itself, which I think you would agree with me, is no bastion of Christian virtue, really? says is wrong says is unethical they have they have go to elaborate pains to keep people from doing exactly what these christian ministries went to elaborate pains to circumvent those processes to circumvent those safeguards and ultimately get their books on the new york times bestseller list here's the important question how could such a practice be conceived and justified that's what we really need to talk about because it goes to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the heart. How does that get justified? Well, it gets justified in matters other than the heart. In other words, people will say, well, this is getting the book into more hands. And mm-hmm. if we get our book on the New York Times bestseller list, we'll, uh, you know, uh, David Jeremiah or Mark Driscoll or Perry Noble or whoever it might be, we'll be able to put that in there even though the book might have only been on the New York Times bestseller list for one week, and it ended up getting there through fraudulent means, for the rest of their lives, they will have New York Times bestselling author on their bio or in whatever book that they publish after that. It'll allow them to get bigger book deals in the future uh, with Christian publishers. So they justify it using these materialistic, financial, uh, numbers-oriented uh, excuses or reasons, ignoring uh, the things that we've been talking about here, Chuck, for nearly the last hour. In other words, uh, is, is it act, you know does it actually follow God's principles? Does the end justify the means? And the answer, of course, is no. Is success up to us, or merely uh, should we be focused on obedience and faithfulness? Thank you and, very much. Um, when you eliminate those concerns and focus purely on the numbers. This is where you end up. What is success? That's, what is success from God's viewpoint? You see, we as human beings, we want to elevate to people into celebrity status and so on. And the moment that happens, pride sets in, and then you've got to continue to maintain that celebrity status. And then you've got to manipulate. You've got to do all kinds of things. So the master actually becomes nothing but a mascot. And our pursuit of so-called ministry and money becomes our Lord. And uh, it, it happens subtly at first, but then it takes over, and it sweeps through, and it's defiling the body of Christ. It's defiling the message. It's defiling the master. And uh, my understanding is there's never been any repentance. Well, I have not heard of any repentance on the part of David Jeremiah. Um, the uh, Some of the others have. Perry Noble, for example, the pastor down in South Carolina who engaged in the same practice, he ultimately ended up leaving his church in part because of uh, the scandal related to his uh, book-buying scheme. 
Mark Driscoll's church in Seattle, Washington, which at one time had more than 15,000 people showing up on a Sunday morning. Um, I wrote a story about Mark Driscoll uh, using Result Source in this book buying scheme. Uh, other things were going on there, Chuck. I'm not, I don't want to take you know too much credit for that, but within within uh, months of the, these stories breaking, Mark Driscoll had resigned from uh, the church, and in fact, the church don't no longer exists today. Um, the church completely folded, and some of the pastors there have started smaller churches. I know you're a big fan of the cell church. I don't think they quite went to the cell church model, but I think they did repent of sort of this big mega church model that they had pursued before. All right. Now, the net effect of this is that as uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the Democrat senator back in the 1960s, <laughs> said, we define deviancy down. And the what happened, these practices actually resulted in the defining or reducing of the oversight uh, requirements of the National Religious Broadcasters Association yep. and the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability because they didn't want to lose their big celebrity, David Jeremiah. That's right. That's right. That's an aspect of the story that, that uh, we haven't talked about yet. But, yeah, you, you, it, in order to be a part of the board of directors and the leadership team of the National Religious Broadcasters, you had to be a member of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. When David Jeremiah no longer qualified for membership because of these practices that we've been discussing, the NRB changed their standards so that he could come back in. And, in fact, a couple of years ago, David Jeremiah was sort of welcomed back to NRB as a conquering hero and was named to the National Religious Broadcasters Hall of Fame. It shows to show you, uh, we think, and we're told evangelical leaders, and I've you know, i been at uh, uh, NRB, National Religious Broadcasters Conventions. In fact, I went to their convention every year for 19 years straight. Mm-hmm. 19 years straight. And I've heard it from the inside. I've watched it. I've watched the deterioration, I've watched the compromises, and uh, it's as if success now and money is the marker for whether the master really has his hand uh, on a particular person or a particular ministry, when the the actual truth may be just the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Again, I think you know how you define success, how you define fruit, in other words, when we say a ministry is bearing fruit because they've gotten large, that is not a biblical definition of what the fruit of the Spirit is. And it and may not be biblical fruit that they're seeing, just because exactly the numbers right. are there. Yep. That's exactly right. So I think that the the real answer, Chuck, is what you really, when in your setup to the show, you know, you, we, we've, got to, we've got to return to the matters of the heart. We've got to understand God's Word. We've got to obey God's Word. Uh, we have got to understand that 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 faithfulness and not numerical success is uh, is what is going to uh, cause God to say, "Well done, good and faithful servant." When we finally get to see Him face. All right. Face. So, if we really want revival in America, it's got to begin in God's house. It can't begin in the national house. It can't begin in the Congress. It can't begin in the presidency. It has to become in God's house. And as Nancy Leigh DeMoss said in her address in 1996 to 4,000 Christian leaders, it has to begin at my sanctuary. That's where judgment's going to begin. 
And that's where repentance and revival begins. There's going to have to be open confession and repentance and asking for the church, the body of Christ, to forgive for these terrible abuses. It, it, well, it, think, it brings tears to my eyes. Yeah. Well, um, I, in mine too, and I, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, repentance, you know, has to start with me. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, some people will say, well, why are you writing about all of these stories? And, you know, and of course, in my day job, which is at Ministry Watch, we write these kinds of stories every day. And I say, because, you know, the truth will set us free. We have got to face the truth. The truth never doesn't set us free, even when that truth is a hard truth to bear, even when it is a hard truth to look at. We, I think, have to face it, and I believe that that's where repentance begins. It is with the acknowledgement and the recognition of sin. Exactly. And we're all sinners, and we all need to confess. But if we will confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And much of these kinds of things have to be done publicly because the sin has been public. The Bible says that uh, that which has been done in secret will be shouted from the housetops. And unfortunately, that's what's happened. And uh, we need to come clean before God. And as Bible-believing Christians, we have to be very careful not to put people on a celebrity status. We cannot elevate human beings, friend. It's better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in men. It's better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in not just politicians and popes, but pastors and parachurch leaders. We must return to the trust in the Lord, or our faith may be fraudulent. Thanks for joining us here on Viewpoint. Wonderful book, Faith-Based Fraud, uh, $14. We'll put it in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. And whatever, maybe the Holy Spirit is quickening you. Maybe you're engaging in practices that are unrighteous. It's time to repent. We're preparing the way of the Lord for history's final hour. And today is the first day of the rest of your life. Thanks for joining us. God bless and be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home. 